Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1 to verse 19. Verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brother. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that you may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the thorns of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore this and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook up the fold of my garments and said, So may God shake out every man from his, his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly say, Amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Atasexus the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers at the food allowance of the governor, the former governors who were before me lay heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration forty shekels of silver. Even their servants lord it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevere in the work on this war and we acquire no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, beside those 
who came to us from the nations that are around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on these people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for these people. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let us seek the Lord in prayer. Our Lord God, we are very thankful to you once again for giving us a time and a place, even a day where we can gather as one people to worship you in the beauty of your holiness. Thank you, Father, for giving us respite from the rain that we can all come into your house even to worship you. And thank you, Father, for giving us a time again where we can gather around your word, even not to listen to the preaching of your word. Once again, we pray, O oh, be pleased to be our teacher. Your Holy Spirit will guide and lead us into your truths. The Holy Spirit will also, Lord, empower the preacher to preach your word in all clarity of mind and speech and with conviction that you also be pleased to plant your word deep in our hearts that it may bring forth much fruit for your glory. Help us, O Lord, for we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, fear is real, and it can either motivate or it can cripple you. When you are afraid of failing your exams, you either work doubly hard, putting in more study hours, or you get paralyzed by the exams itself. Now, remember when I was in the army, that was, of course, many years ago. Our greatest fear then was not physical or even military training. No doubt it was tough and it posed a certain amount of danger. Our greatest fear then was we are not able to book up in time or book up at all from army camp by Saturday, 12.20 p.m. Now on that particular morning, we will ensure that we have cleaned out our bunks thoroughly. We will have cleared the armory promptly and we will wait patiently for the sergeant major or we call the inject to inspect the barracks before releasing us for the short weekend. Well, his very presence instilled a sense of dread and fear in all of us because he could delay our booking up time, which he often did from time to time. But as a true blue military man, trained by real soldiers, we respected him a lot as well. And he would often delay us from booking out by saying the drain is full of fallen leaves. Of course, the drain will be full of fallen leaves. Got the leaves keep falling after we clear it. He will say the toilet window pans are full of dirt. Of course, we will clean our own bunk, but not the toilet window pans. Of course, things have changed now. We have cleaners coming in to clean your bunk and clean your toilets in a military camp. Today, we read of another kind of fear in our scripture reading. The people of God in Nehemiah's time, days were in trouble again. 
The last time we saw them rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, and they have survived a round of opposition to the work of God from the enemy of the soul and his cohorts. And now they face a great outcry from the people over social injustice and oppression from within. Nehemiah sought to address and resolve the internal troubles by appealing to the fear of God in verses 9 and 15. And God helping this morning, we shall look briefly into what is the biblical meaning of the fear of God, its movements, its maintenance, and I shall end with a couple of concluding thoughts. Now, what is the biblical meaning of the fear of God? From the Bible, we can, there are basically two aspects of the fear of God as derived from the Bible. Firstly, it refers to the terror and dread of the Lord. We read of that from Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 24 to verse 25, and I shall read to you. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 20, uh, chapter 2, verse 24 to verse 25. Rise up, set up on your journey, and go over the valley of the Anon. Behold, I have given into your hand Shihon, the Amorite king of Heshbon, and his land, begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. That is before the people of God cross over the river Jordan into the promised land. The Lord has promised that he will send their dread and terror, the report of their dread and terror into the hearts of the people. Now what is this report? There's a sample of it from Joshua chapter 2 verse 8 to 11. Okay, a sample of the report can be found in Joshua chapter 2, verse 8 to verse 11, I shall read to you. And it is where Rahab was speaking to the two spies who went earlier to spy up the land. And Rahab says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shehon and Ord, whom you devoted to destruction. And as, we, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melt, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God... He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. The people of the Canaanites have heard the report that the terrible and dreadful God, Jehovah, is with the people of Israel. Now when I use the word terrible, I'm using it in the old way, not in our modern usage. God is terrible. And dreadful before the unbelievers as we have read in this two simple passage. 
See, the hidden people fear, and they feel the dread of God. As he worked through his children, his church, and also through creation. See, every morning when we wake up, when we hear the thunder, when we saw the thunderstorm this morning, to us is wow, is God watering the earth. But to many unbelievers, they can see the terror of creation. If they see the lightning flashes at night, of course, some of us are still be afraid of the lightning flashes at night. But it is a display of God's power. But to the unbeliever, is terrible. Something that is life-threatening. If you're out in the sea, if you're out in the field alone, you can know lightning can strike you and kill you instantly. So God display His terror and His dread through His people of old, and also through His creation. So this is one aspect of the fear of God. Natural men fear God. Although they don't know who God is, and they try to run away from God, but yet they fear and they dread Him. Secondly, it refers also to the veneration and honor for God. Read of that in Isaiah chapter six, verse one to six, and I shall read to you. Isaiah chapter six, verse one says, "In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up." And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim; each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, "Holy, holy, holy, is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory." And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I say, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And verse seven, he touched my mouth, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. We see here that both the prophet Isaiah and the angelic host look at the same thrice holy God, and both were overwhelmed by great sense of awe and honor for God. Each expressing themselves in a different way. So when we come into the presence of the thrice holy God. The only fitting reaction is a fear of reverential awe, or that is mingled with a sense of unworthiness, which leads us to cast ourselves on the grace and the love of Christ. Again, back to the the days where my sergeant major rules the camp. We fear him because he can punish us. We respect him because he's a true military man, but at the end of the day, it's still a very slavish fear for him. But it's different from the Lord. When we come before the Lord, we fear God, for He is the Creator of the heavens and the earth. He's infinite, omnipotent, omniscient. 
God and thrice holy God. But on the other hand, we also honor and reverence Him for He is our Savior. He is our loving Heavenly Father. He is one who saved us from our sin, who have called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. So it's a mingling fear of dread as well as respect, of terror as well as love. So this ought to be how we fear the Lord and how we walk in the fear of the Lord. Of course, modern day Christianity teaches us God is love and He will not look at our sin. No, God will look at our sin. God will look at our sin and He will chastise His children for their sin if we did not repent from our sin. And God, God will judge the world for their sin for not repenting, for not believing in Him. Yet God is our loving Heavenly Father who call upon us, one and all, to come to Him in faith and repentance. And we, and we come before God as a child coming to a father, as full of respect and also full of love for our Heavenly Father. So these are the two aspects of the fear of God that I want you to bear in mind and to balance these two aspects of the fear of God. Dread and respect terror and reverence with love. Having a look at that, how does fearing God look like? How does it move and how does it motivate us in our Christian life? The first thing we note from the text is that just like Nehemiah, the fear of God should move us to see sin as God sees it. Okay. The fear of God should move us as He has moved Nehemiah to see sin as God sees it. You see, the economic situation was bad due to a famine, and the poor Jews have to mortgage their farms and sold their children to bond servitude to the rich, to the nobles, and even to the priests in order to pay tax and to survive. Furthermore, the rich were charging interest on their brethren. You see, the outcry was not just a matter of social injustice and oppression, the rich bullying the poor. It is a clear violation of the will of God. God has forbidden His people of old not to enslave nor charge interest on their brethren. You can read for that in Exodus chapter 22, Leviticus 25, and Deuteronomy 23. Okay. These few passages, among others, forbids the charging of interest as well as enslaving of their own brethren. They were transgressing the law of God, in short. And sin is the transgression of God's law. Nehemiah saw that, and he was filled with godly anger for sin. And he exhorted the rich, the nobles, and even the priests to see it too in the fear of God. 
this time round, I have the time to go to visit the Genocide Museum in Phnom Penh. It's in a very lovely neighborhood. It was a former school, but in the year 1970, they turned the school into a slaughterhouse. And for five years, estimated 20,000 Cambodians were not only tortured, sorry, not only killed, but they were systematically tortured first before they are murdered over a period of five years in that very compound. When I was there, I did not see social injustice or even political oppression. Right in front of me, I can see the sheer depth of human depravity. How could a human being do something to another human being? You could just kill him with a gun. No, they will torture the person first. And if and most all of us will be tortured because we are all intellectuals. I will trust. All of us will be sent there. One by one, we torture first. Men and women, young and old, overseas scholars, local scholars will be tortured first. Before they kill you, this is not only political oppression. This is the sheer depth of human depravity. If not for the grace of God, the whole of Cambodia will be butchered in this way. So this is a sin, and we, the fear of God, should move us to see sin as God sees it. We have to call a spade a spade. And may we feel with godly anger too when we see sin, and we are when we are confronted by sin, not only in our own lives, but also in the lives of others. And really, may we see sin as God sees it. It's only when we see sins as God sees it through His Word that we can come, take hold of His grace and His love, that we can repent and turn from to God, or else all your preaching of the gospel. All your sharing of the gospel, your Christianity explore, your Christianity explain courses will come to nothing when we never, when we do not see sin as God sees it. It's not just a bad manners in the person's life; it is sin. It's a clear violation of God's word, and all sin has to be judged. All of sinners must flee to Christ, must run to Christ, to turn to Him in faith and in repentance. Then there's only hope for one and all who will come to Christ. And secondly, verses seven to eleven tells us that the fear of God should move us to listen and to obey His word as God instructs it. Nehemiah confronted the rich, the nobles, and the priests with simple logic. You see, they have been buying the slave, the Jewish slave from the nation, and now you are enslaving the same people whom we have bought to be free, and we have to buy from you again. It's illogical, right? And also, Nehemiah confronts the people with the very message of God's word. Of course, he did not quote from scripture like I did just now, but in a summary, he derived his the teaching from the scripture from the book, the first five books of the Bible. Previously, the rich could only hear the voice of their bank account books. And their covetous heart, but when they hear the word of God, like Leviticus chapter twenty-five, verse thirty-six, which reads, 
take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, things started to change. Similarly, when you listen to the will of God, things will change. But when you listen to the world and to your own deceitful heart, you will be blind to simple logic and the will of God, just like the rich in Nehemiah's day. But the fear of the Lord takes souls of them. And they started to walk in the fear of the Lord anew. And they began to hear. And they began to obey the word of God. They were instructed to stop charging interest and to restore to their brethren their lands, their farms, and a percentage of the money owned. But they obeyed the Lord. And of course, doing God's will and obeying God's word can be costly and seemingly inconvenient. So we have to write off, for the rich in Nehemiah's day, they have to write off all the debt. No need to restore the farm. At first, I have this beautiful vineyard. Now I have to return to Gary. And I have to write off Aries' debt. It's costly to me, you know, as a rich man. I want to be one, one penny richer, but now I couldn't be one penny richer. I have to write off the debt. I have to return the farm. But the fear of God should be and would be the impetus and the reward of doing God's will. Thirdly, verses 12 to 13 tells us that they turn from their sin as God commanded it when they walk in the fear of the Lord. The rich promised they would restore the mortgages and root off their brethren's debt, and they did exactly what they had promised. This is true repentance. It's not just by word of mouth. Amen. After they shout amen, they must, and I must go to my books and write off Harry's debt and then return the other day to Gary. After I shout amen. Likewise, not by words of confession only, but by works of action. It is so easy to say that we have sinned. And we, every lost day when we confess our sin after reading of the law, it is so easy to confess as a corporate body. It's so easy to say we are sorry, but our actions must back our confession. Okay, the fruits of repentance must follow. In this case, the rich have to make the restitution, the restoration. For you, you may have to say sorry. Write to the person. Walk to the person and say sorry, I back mouth you. Or write, even go to your parents and tell your parents, sorry, I have dishonored you. I have shouted back at you. And from henceforth, strive by the power of God, by His love to be filial, to be respectful to our parents. Which is something I do every time when I went to my mom's place. I get very agitated. And I have to each time remind myself, no, I cannot be agitated. And I must respect my parents as commanded by the Lord. 
I must beg with my actions too. So I buy him some kwe kwe to sweeten his tooth each time I try to when I visit her. It's a way to show my respect and my love. I don't know what are your ways to show your love and your respect to your parents, to your teachers in school. Think of ways to do so. And fourthly, verses 14 to 18 tells us that the fear of God should move us to love one another, not only as our neighbor, but as God loves us. Okay, to love one another, not only as our neighbor, but as God loves us. We read here of an interesting account, something we do not hear anymore. Nehemiah forgo his allowances and entitlement as a governor so as not to burden the people of God. He forgo his allowance for 12 years, for 12 good years in his term as a governor of Judah, where previous governors would tax the people heavily to fill his dining table with goodies. Every day, he forgo that because he knows it's a heavy burden on the people. He was also generous and hospitable to one and all who come to him at his own expense. Nehemiah's self-sacrifice and self-denial sprung from his love for the people of God and his kingdom as we see from the book. Our first sermon on chapter 1. And Nehemiah did it because of the fear of God. In other words, because God had put his fear of his great name into Nehemiah's heart, Nehemiah had regard for God's kingdom and his people, and he poured out his love onto them as God loves and saved him from his sins. Now the gospel calls Christians to have the same love and generosity. Of course, the people of old, for the people of God of old, mortgages return and debts are written off. And grace transforms the covetous creditors into those who are loving and gracious, just as their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is infinitely loving, gracious, and generous to all who will come to Him in repentance and in faith. We have covered the meaning and the movement of the field of God briefly, we shall now quickly look into a few ways on how to maintain our fear or how to maintain our reverence for God. First of all, the Bible exhorts us in Second Peter 3.18 that we are to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord while we are to grow in several spiritual graces, one of them is paramount in the maintenance of the fear of God. We can see this grace in the life of King Josiah. We read in Second Chronicles chapter 34, verse 26 to verse 27. Second Chronicles chapter 34, verse 26 says, But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard his words against this place and in inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. You see, King Josiah have heard the message of God's imminent judgment on his ungodly nations. And he feared the Lord. Who is not afraid to hear of a message of doom and gloom upon your nation? He feared the Lord and he humbled himself and he received God's word. Yes, even the message of doom with a tender heart. And as a result, King Josiah got a listening ear with the Lord, whom he feared, whom he humbled before the Lord. Humility is the key grace to grow in the maintenance of our fear of God. If we are not humble before the Lord, we have no regard for Him. We will not have any regard for the Lord if we are not humble before the Lord. And we are to grow in the knowledge of the Lord too. The more we know of the Lord God, theoretically and also experientially, His characters and His ways, the more we know of His word and His will, the more we will fear and reverence God. You won't respect someone whom you doesn't know or you need hear about. Or the great names, whether in the business world, whether in the world of learning, or even the world of religion, doesn't sound a lot to me because I, did, I didn't know them. I don't know them personally. But if you know the person personally and you have conversation with the person, you will grow. Not only in knowledge of the person, but if he's a great person, and he's a great person, you'll grow in awe and grief. Just like the Lord, you did not know the Lord. If you don't know the Lord at all, you will never grow in his fear. You can hear about what people say about God, but do you know the Lord yourself? So you need to know the Lord, and the way to know the Lord, not only theoretically, but also experientially, is from his word. His word revealed to us his character, his will, his way, and how we deal with sinners like you and me. His character shines forth in every account of the scripture. The whole scripture speaks of Christ and, and how we are to grow in him, in fear. So let us dig into his word daily to know the Lord more. You may have read your Bible once. I challenge the Cambodian students to read their Bible at least once in their stay at the dorms. They will stay there for three to four years during their uni days. So I challenge them, read the Bible once, and they look at me. So I also challenge all of you, read the Bible once at least in a three-year period. There's a reading plan. You can read it in one year but you can extend it to three years. 
when I say read the Bible, I didn't mean study the Bible. Reading the Bible is reading from cover to cover. I read the Bible once when I was in, uh, I think, primary four. Because my Sunday school teacher challenged us. Read your Bible once. Okay, read the Bible. So I read it from cover to cover, like a novel. And it's really a very nice novel. You can read through the adventures of King David, especially. Then adventures of Samson, or adventures of this and that. But as you read the Bible, you have a good grasp of the message of the Bible. That's the main thing that I want not only the Cambodian students to have, but also all of us to have. To have a good grasp of the message of the Bible. Before you study, Bible study is different. Bible study, you go through verse by verse. You study verse by verse. That is different. So it's easy to read the Bible once, but it takes a lifetime, or 1,000 lifetimes actually, to study the Bible. And we will continue to do that in heaven, to study who God is, to know who God is. But now on earth, read the Bible once, and a lifetime of studying the Bible. And of course, we need to grow in communication and confidence with the Lord. Read in verse 19, that Nehemiah prayed to God after the unpleasant episode. He never failed to cast his burdens to the Lord in prayer. And he had every confidence in God in his labor for him. Prayer and open communication with the Lord who keep us on the ground. That we are but unworthy servants of the Lord. That we can only serve the Lord as He gives us strength. We are nothing. But God is everything. And we can, we can come to God who is everything in prayer. Thus we grow in fear for the Lord as we see the Lord's hear and answers our prayer in the most impossible situation. What do I mean by that? If you will know a bit of the history of the Cambodian church, you'll be very surprised. By the end of the war in the 1980s, before 1975, 1979, there's only about 3,000 Christians in Cambodia and they are all in the refugee camp in Thailand. Not even in Cambodia, no. Outside Cambodia, by the border in Thailand. 3,000 of them. The, city, the country empty of Christians. How the church is going to survive. How the church will make it when the war is over. So one leader who came from the camp, went to U.S. and then uh, went back to the city, went back to Cambodia to serve the Lord. He and his uh, what they call the front line believers, because they are all from the front line. Refugee camp believers, they come together and pray. Pray the Lord will once again set plant his church in Cambodia. And today, after more than 30 years, there's a young church in Cambodia. And the country is still open for the gospel. See, I can travel to the village, I can travel to the city to share the gospel without any hindrances. Except for the bumpy road, that's the only problem I face. Of course, language, but they have Wi-Fi in the city as well as in the village, so it's not a problem. The country is open for the gospel, and 
seemingly impossible situation, coming out from the ravages of war and genocide, the church takes root and is growing. This is how prayer works and how we can pray too to let the Lord do His work in our lives. And we are to grow in fellowship with godly Christians in the maintenance of the fear of God. And there is something whereby we cannot neglect, something which we all often neglect, actually. We read in Psalm 119, verse 63, and it says, I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. I read again, I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The psalmist resolved to be a companion and is glad to be a companion to all who fear God and to all who keep his word. Why is this so? The answer can be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. And I read to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. You see, when I was a teenager, my mother would often remind, remind me, don't you ever mix with bad company. Don't you ever mix with something in the neighborhood or in your school. Something is gangsters, okay, if you are not aware of. Because they will lead you astray. They will make you drink They'll make you take drugs. In my time, teenage drugs is very popular. You have to make friends with the hardworking and the studious students in school, and they'll influence you to do well in your studies. And one reason why they are, she allowed me to go to church is because church is a place where goody people are, right? Is it? Is it true? Church is a place where good people are, right? Where people speak English, people are well-mannered. So one reason why you allow me to go to church is I can pick up some good English as well as good manners. See, the world knows this logic. Bad company, corrupt, good morals. The world knows it. My mom knows it. Your parents knows it too. But the children of the God do not always get it. See, while Nehemiah shunned the company of Sambalat, we read of that previously, right? A few previous chapters. That he's the enemy of God's people. Eliashib, the high priest, of all persons, the high priest, he was friendly with him. They became close associates in business. And even through marriage, you see, his grandson, uh, Elisha, the high priest, his grandson married the daughter of Sambalat. There's not only business ties, there's also these marriage ties between the two families. And very sadly, we read in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 28 to verse 29, that Elisha, the high priest, had desecrated the priesthood. He had no fear for the Lord. He, his companion is not those who fear the Lord, nor his word. 
and there's no need. There's no need Elisha who is affected. The generation that comes after him, the priesthood be, became really so corrupted that by the time of Malachi, there are no regard for God at all. They're offering the worst of the flock to the Lord. Prophet Malachi offer the lame. And by the time the lame sacrifices to the Lord, by the time of Christ, we read of Caiaphas and Ananias, the two high priests who preside over the crucifixion or the trial of Christ. That is how when someone loses the fear of God, how he has degenerated into such a sad state, the total desecration of the priesthood begins when you lose the fear of God. So let us maintain the circle of godly friends in whom we can learn from and count on whose godly lives inspire and influence us to walk in the fear of God. Now, godly men of the past can continue to be our companion in the Christian life. I mean, through their books. Now, I have many old godly friends long gone to be with the Lord, and they continue to teach me, they continue to influence me, they continue to inspire me through their books and even audio sermons. So may we avail ourselves to the companionship of godly people, not only of the past, but also of the present, that we may continue to grow, to continue to maintain the fear of God in our lives. Now what shall we say to these things? Firstly, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Verse 11a. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11a says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Dear church, you have known the fear of the Lord. Not only today, but I trust from days past. You know the fear of the Lord. What's next is, you persuade others to share the good news of Christ's salvation to others. And the word here, Paul used a very interesting word, persuade. It's not just one time. Persuasion comes, it's not just one off. You have to continue to persuade, continue to share. Continue to persuade and continue to share. Continue to persuade and continue to share. Like what my brother is doing with my mom, for over almost 40 over years of sharing with her the good news of Christ's salvation. Of course, from time to time. But it's a long-term persuasion. Persuade my mom to come to know the Lord. So knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Please persuade others to know the fear of God. To come to Christ while it is still yet day. And secondly, in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, we read that the church, the early church, they walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Not only the people of God in Nehemiah's time walk in the fear of the Lord, 
but the early church also walk in the fear of the Lord. So let us, oh, church, as a church, as an individual, strive to walk in the fear of the Lord. That it may multiply. The graces of God may multiply in our lives. Our church may multiply as a result of walking in the fear of the Lord and in the joy of the Holy Spirit or in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And finally, in verse John chapter 4, verse 18, it reads, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears have not been perfected in love. Again, there is no fear in love. When we come before the Lord, as we walk in the fear of the Lord, we do it in love. It's love. Christ loves us. And He gives His life for us. We love Him. We respect Him. We honor Christ. We reverence the Lord. Because He first loved us.